Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Clanky County 911, there's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. But people expect you to be precise. So, for example, when I first arrived in the community, people would ask me where I'm from. And I would say, from California. And they would say, well, where is that? I thought I just needed to be more precise. And I'd say, oh, America or something like that. What they really needed me to do is to point in the right direction. And I hadn't thought beforehand which way you would go from this particular part of Cape York to California. Like, is it the way that I flew? (laughs) Is it the other (laughs) way around, which is probably straighter and faster? Is it straight through the earth? (laughs) So (laughs) Today, I've got Lyra Boroditsky, Professor of Cognitive Science at UCSD on the show. She's a really big deal in the languages and cognitive science worlds, having taught at MIT and Stanford. And you can find her TED Talk easily on Google, where she talks about many of the concepts that she'll talk about today in more detail. Her teaching and her research are all about the way we form thought, the way we think, and the way language affects how we think. If any of you have seen the movie Arrival, you'll know what I mean, because it's a great example of how learning the alien language allows you to think differently. Sounds like an Apple advert. Uh, I won't spoil it, but the film... Well, I might spoil it later, but I won't now. But the film and its original short story by Ted Chiang just blew my mind. Scientists in the real world haven't encountered anything quite so sci-fi-like, but Dr. Boroditsky has nailed down certain characteristics in the 7,000 languages around the world that make its native speakers think in different ways. For example, she ingrained herself with one community where they use cardinal points, so south, west, east, north, instead of left and right. It means they have an internal map of compass points, something we never thought humans had the ability to do. They see a sort of map in their heads and it moves around and shows them west, south, east, all those things. So it's just an an amazing thing that comes just from learning their language and and being uh, exposed to their culture. Other examples she'll talk about include the way we see colour, the way we count and use maths and engineer things, and the way gender is influenced by language. For example, the French for bridge is le pont, and it's masculine, and they therefore tend to describe it in poetry or whatever else as imposing and strong, while Germans, die Brücke, is feminine, so bridges are seen as somehow elegant and fragile. Uh, And while those gender stereotypes might be a little outdated, they give us an insight into the way words can have effects on the way we see the world around us and, and meaning. 
As many of you know, language is one of my biggest passions. I speak five, although I cheat by including English. The others are Spanish, French, German, and Portuguese. And one of the things that has fascinated me is how I find myself taking on a new personality with each language. When I'm in a group of French people, I become this low voice, suave, philosophical guy, uh, qui parle en français, voilà, on va à la teuf, ça va. While in Argentine Spanish, I take on an Italian inflection, a bit more risque in how I talk, you know, I'm singing my words, I, che, que te pasa, que vamos a hacer esta noche. And that has to change your personality a little bit, you know, it, not only in how you're perceived by other people, but in how you think while communicating in, in those other languages. I mean, I really feel like I become that other person. So that's why I've been absolutely fascinated by Dr. Boroditsky's work and by a book I recently read by Guy Deutscher called Through the Language Glass, where he mentions some of the things as well that we're going to talk about in this podcast. But Dr. Boroditsky talks to me about all of those things and also touches on things like enforced language change, such as gender neutral pronouns and other social justice changes and causes, and talks a little bit about psychopaths. She even suggests she might just be one. I think she was joking. But there's some truth in the notion that very high-performing people are often some form of sociopath. Um, if you're into that, check out my earlier episodes with M.E. Thomas, the female Mormon psychopath, and Mary Turner Thompson, whose husband was a psychopath and a bigamist. Please make sure to share this podcast with friends and suggest it to people. Follow me on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. I could do with some more followers. But for now, it's Lyra Boroditsky and Languages. English is your fourth language, is that right? I don't know how that got started. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Wikipedia. I grew up in the Soviet Union, and I grew up speaking Russian as my first language. Oh. And uh, I was around Belarusian and Ukrainian, but I didn't really speak those languages. Uh, so English was really my second language. Okay. And I've learned bits and pieces of other languages along the way. But, uh, oh, right. English okay. and Russian are the two languages I really speak. Privet. Uh, I don't know how to say and you. Um. <laughs> you first have to decide whether we're being formal or informal. Decide if you're going to, you know, you, I'm sure you, well, you speak German. So. Yeah, I speak German, yeah. French, Spanish, and Portuguese. So it's, so I imagine it's like the vous and tu in French. Right. That's another thing, because I looked at, I, I watched your TED talk and you talked about, which we'll get on to, you know, like th there were five things I think you mentioned that really change how people think and stuff. But then the, the other one is, is, is that, isn't it, I suppose? Do you think differently because you are maybe more conscious of, of addressing somebody based on their status or age? There's been a little bit of work on that. I think there's a lot more to, for us to learn, but um, there seems to be a difference in how much people pay attention to age and remember other people's ages, if that's relevant for your language. But of course, it's also really relevant then in your culture for all kinds of other reasons. So it's, it's to disentangle what what's the main causal i find it all fascinating what got what's what was it that got you first like so interested in languages and cognitive science you know i i've always been interested in the human mind and it never occurred to me that there were any other things that could be more interesting i just uh, thought i was uh focusing on the thing that was naturally the most interesting thing and i think it was some sometime through graduate school that i noticed there are other smart people working in other fields and it puzzled me. I was like, wow, <laughs> people working on like physics and chemistry, <laughs> literature, <laughs> who, who would have thought? It just yeah. seemed like obviously any, any smart person should be interested in how the mind works because what could be more fascinating. But I did literature and that's sort of how the mind works, but I guess it's for people who weren't, I mean, I never felt clever enough to study the sciences. Uh, I, I mean, are you into your, you must be into literature and language and stuff as part of the whole thing. Of course, literature is a, a wonderful expression of our linguistic creative power, uh, but so is any normal language conversation, right? So in the conversation that we're having right now, uh, we've both said sentences we've never said before. Possibly we've said sentences that no humans have ever said before, and we've only been chatting for a minute or two. So that's an incredible creative force that we have inside our brains. Do you think that's true, that we've said things that nobody's ever said before? Uh, 
quite likely because you've been asking me very specific questions about what got me interested in uh, cognitive science. And I don't know that there's another person who would have given exactly that answer with exactly those words. I suppose if you make it like the whole paragraph, nobody said that before, but maybe like, I wonder if there's anything we've said that's like just two words next to each other that are that have never been said before. That's That's harder, isn't it? Two words would be extremely unlikely, but uh, you can definitely find a sentence in this conversation that there will be zero hits on in Google. That's cool. I like that. I really like that. How many languages do you speak now, actually? Well, I speak English and Russian as the languages that I'm fluent in. Um, and at some point I spoke terrible French uh, and native French speakers let me know just how terrible it was. Um, and at some point, I also spoke some pretty terrible Indonesian. Uh, Indonesians wow. began to be very nice about uh, about others trying to speak their language. So for a moment, I believed I was brilliant. I've heard that Indonesians are fair, like relatively, uh, from an objective point of view, a fairly simple language. Is that right or not? It's hard to say what language is simple overall because there's so many facets of a language. It's uh, a language that's easy to get started in. So you okay. can make yourself understood reasonably uh, quickly, but there are all kinds of subtleties that take a really long time to pick up. But just making yourself understood, getting to that point is relatively easier. Do you think learning uh, new languages, did you notice yourself, Is there a, does it change you cognitively as an adult when you start to learn languages? Yeah, it's always such a fun process. Uh, so uh, you notice, you always notice things in a new language that are uh, perspectives that you didn't have before. There are distinctions that are made in any language that you aren't used to making. Yeah. And at first, uh, usually people uh, complain about it. So, for example, when you learned uh, French or German, you would have had to learn grammatical genders in those languages. And of course, they differ from language to language. And anyone who has to learn a second language with grammatical gender will complain. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Why do I have to memorize all these genders? Oh, man. You know, you know what? In French, in French and Spanish, it was actually okay. Uh, French was the first like foreign language I learned and it was a bit frustrating but then by the time I got to Spanish which I think objectively if you can be objective about a language is is far easier than French especially with the, with the genders because most of the words end with a or o so you know where you are mm -hmm. and then I got you know Portuguese was very similar mm -hmm. and then German was just like another mm -hmm. thing from another planet of of genders and madness why don't they just make it simpler <laughs> Well, uh, a lot of people have noticed this. So uh, Mark Twain wrote an essay about his experience learning German. He, uh, the title of the essay was The Awful German Language. Gives <laughs> <laughs> you a sense of his experience. And a lot of, a lot of that centers on grammatical gender. Uh, David Sedaris also in uh, Me Talk Pretty One Day writes about learning French and the frustration he has with getting genders wrong all the time and being treated like you can't even speak as well as a three-year-old. And uh, the way he solves that problem in the end is to only refer to everything in the plural. So he oh. can never buy one toaster. He has to buy two toasters because then <laughs> you don't have to specify gender. That's amazing. So. That would work, I think, in German too. My problem with French, what was really interesting to me actually becoming more self-reflective about it as I was learning uh, French was was... I started to understand how when French people learn English, for example, they often can't pronounce certain sounds like I, for, you know, um, so the difference between, you know, sheet and shit, beach and mm -hmm. bitch, they can't do the I, the, you know, there were vowels that we don't have in French. So I was mm -hmm. saying merci beaucoup to everyone and mm -hmm. merci beaucoup means thanks, nice ass, nice mm -hmm. bottom, you know, instead of cool. Uh, this is the difference between or and u, which we don't have. So that was my big mistake in French, I guess. Right. You always have to learn to pay attention to certain things that you haven't you haven't had to pay attention to before. And that could be sounds or even um, simple distinctions in how you say no. So um, let me give you one of my favorite examples from Indonesian. If I ask you, is uh, your microphone wooden? In English, you would say no. In uh, Indonesian, you would say tidak. Uh, if I asked you, is that a wooden microphone? In English, again, you would say no. But in Indonesian, you'd say bukan, because in the first case, you're denying a property that it's a microphone that is wooden. <laughs> in the second case, you're de de denying the categoryhood that, that it is a wooden microphone. 
And if for some reason you had uh, plans to make it a wooden microphone, then the way to say no would be bloom, which would mean not yet. Oh, my word. <laughs> a lot of questions people ask you in Indonesia, for example, do you have any kids or have you been to Bali? Things that you're expected to do. The proper answer oh. is not no, but bloom, not yet. And if you just try to say uh, no, the people will correct you and say, oh, you mean not yet. You're going to go to Bali. You're going to have kids. <laughs> that's so insane. And that's something you have to reveal then. The language forces you to reveal that. The language forces you to pay attention to what it is that you're denying and whether it's something that's likely to happen in the future or not. Yeah. Wow. Are there things like that? Have you picked up on things like that in foreign languages that you would like English to adopt? I mean, for, for me, the example is always the plural you, mm. uh, which sometimes in parts of, I think, Boston and I think in the north of England, we, we have we put an S on the end, U's. Um, are, there, are there things like that? You know, one thing that I think is really convenient is when you can elide certain things. So when you can be more ambiguous um, or more general. So we were talking about gender before. Um, it would be really nice if you didn't have to mark gender in English on pronouns if you didn't have to, uh, if you didn't want to, right? So lots of languages don't have gender pronouns. So Indonesian, for example, is a language like that. And so in Indonesian, you can choose to add gender if you want to talk about it. You could choose to not include it. The students of mine have already told me that they sometimes strategically use this feature uh, if they're bilingual, for example, if they're speaking a language where uh, you might say uh, to your parents, oh, I'm meeting a friend tonight. Well, in English, the word friend does not include gender. So you could just be nice and ambiguous about it. But if you're saying it, say, in Farsi or in uh, Russian, you would have to specify gender and then your parents may have some further questions. And so my students would say, well, I strategically switch into English so that <laughs> you don't have to press the question. Wow. Um, I think there are lots of cases like that, whether it's gender or other things where you want to be able to make the choice of whether you're including uh, extra information or not when it's relevant. So what actually is happening when we speak? What is speaking? Well, uh, you just made uh, some tones and hisses and puffs with your mouth while exhaling. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that created a set of air vibrations that vibrated your microphone uh, eventually, it will travel to your listeners' ears, vi vibrate their eardrums in their ears, and then your brain will take that set of vibrations and transform those vibrations, hopefully, into thoughts. <laughs> and uh, at a physical level, that's what's happening. But the process by which your brain takes those vibrations and creates uh, patterns of meaning is, of course, extremely complicated and something we're only starting to understand. It is it's so complicated, yet it seems so simple for us. And and there are 7,000 languages, so 7,000. You said I um, exhaled. Was Is that what speaking is? You always exhale. Are there languages where people inhale to, to make noises? Uh, you can make noises lots of different ways. Some languages, they're clicks. Uh, some languages, there's a whistled register of Spanish, for example, spoken in the Canary Islands. It's like wow. a slightly re reduced version of the vowel space. So there are lots and lots of different ways that people make noise. But of course, there are languages also that are not spoken at all, that don't involve exhalation. So there are sign languages spoken around the world that follow a different physical process. What we're always doing when we're speaking is... We're trying to invite another human to look at the world in a particular way, right? So we're inviting them to share something about the way that we're seeing things. Uh, we're trying to create some difference in their brain, uh, make them think something that they aren't already thinking on their own. We're like a bunch of manipulators. That's, I mean, there's no other reason to use language with another human, right? Except to get them to think something that they aren't already thinking <laughs> or get them to do something that they aren't already doing. Sounds quite cynical. Well, but you could think of it in a cooperative context, right? So I could uh, tell you, careful, jump, jump out of the way of that bus. Uh, so in that case, it's, it's quite helpful. Or if we're just trying to move a table together, we could be agreeing on if we're going to go left or right, or if we're going to flip it one way or another. Cool. Mostly we're using language in the acts of cooperation of trying to do things together. I'm really interested in this. Um, how do you pronounce it? Kark Tayor people. Tayor, yeah. 
the Kuktaioa people. Did you go and meet them? Yeah, I had a chance to go there. Uh, my friend and collaborator, Alice Gaby, did a lot of work in that community describing the language. She wrote, co-wrote with uh, some of the folks there, uh, the grammar of the Kuktaioa language. And it has some really interesting properties that made me want to go and uh, do some studies there. And I was lucky to be able to go and do it. So uh, in Kuktaioa, and this is true of a lot of the world's languages, it's not the only language like this. Instead of using words like left and right uh, to uh, talk about space, uh, they use uh, cardinal direction terms. So something like north, south, east, and west. These words are just used all over the place. So, for example, the way you say hello in Kuktaioa is uh, in English, you might say, how are you? Fine. Uh, in uh, Kuktaioa, you would say, which way are you going? And the answer should be something like north, northwest, in the far distance. How about you? Is that a philosophical, metaphorical response, or does it actually mean where they're walking? It has to be a precise um, uh, direction. Um, <laughs> and people will correct you if you're wrong. So kids get trained on this. So, for example, uh, a parent might ask a child, where's grandmother's house? And the child might point and say, oh, it's this way. And the parent will say, no, no, it's this way and correct three degrees. Uh, <laughs> uh, and if actually you can see this in the precision and gesture there. So uh, as I'm talking to you, I might say, oh, I used to live in San Francisco or um, I was visiting Australia. And I might be making gestures in different directions with my hands. And if you measure those gestures in English speakers, uh, they're basically random. Like you can't follow my gestures and get to San Francisco. <laughs> Australia. No. <laughs> um, but uh, in languages like Kuktaioa, people are making precise gestures. One time I had, uh, I was talking to this guy, Alfred, and he told me that he was going fishing the next day. And as he said he was going fishing, he gestured in a particular direction. And he immediately realized that he'd just given away the location of his favorite secret fishing spot. And so he started waving his hand around <laughs> smear the direction. Oh my um, God. Um, but people expect you to be precise. So for example, when I first arrived in the community, people would ask me where I'm from. And I would say, from California. And they would say, well, where is that? And I thought I just needed to be more precise. And I'd say, well, America or something like that. Right? And what they really needed me to do was to point in the right direction. And I hadn't thought beforehand which way you would go from this particular part of Cape York to California. Like, is it... Uh, the way that I flew is it the other way around, which is probably straighter and faster. Is it straight through the earth? <laughs> so <laughs> I had a few options. And so I pointed in somewhat different directions the first few times I was asked. And then people kind of thought I was a shady character. They're like, oh, she's God. trying to hide something. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess their, their language does, hasn't, hasn't developed to allow for the, the idea that somebody might be from th several thousand miles away. Well, uh, you know, Australia is pretty big, but it, it, there is an, uh, an assumption that there is some straight line uh, to where, where you came from or where you need to go. If there are conventions for pointing to California, I, was, I, didn't, I certainly didn't know them ahead of time. So they've got like a superpower because of their language. It's like a superpower that lets them sort of know at all times compass points or cardinal points. Are they using... Sort of, you know, landmarks. Are they using where the sun is and the time of the year, or could you put them in a dark room and turn them around, and they'd know north from south? Yeah. So the way that people stay oriented is it's not magic. Um, there are some ways that you can disorient any human, right? So if you blindfold someone and spin them around in a chair, your vestibular system will reset, and then you'll be disoriented, and the cooktire speakers will also be disoriented. Um, also, when you fall asleep, uh, your vestibular system resets. So uh, one thing that people often ask is, well, what if you put them on a plane and they fall asleep on the plane and they land in a new place they've never been and it's a uh, cloudy night so that you can't even see the stars. Uh, so now all, mark, all reorientation markers are gone. Their vestibular system is reset. Do they still know which way is which? And the answer is no, they don't know. They can be disoriented in that context. Uh, but what people will do then 
is you actually do have to establish a direction in order to speak the language, even just mm -hmm. to continue conversing with one another. You have to agree on some set of directions. And so they will get together and say, okay, uh, north is that way, and they'll decide some direction. And then when they get more information, they'll change. Uh, but there is, uh, it is necessary to have some direction set. Is it about the language or the culture? Well, they go hand in hand. So, mm. um, but one way, you know, language is of course one part of culture. Uh, there are lots of other parts uh, of culture outside of language. But if you think about um, taking English, and it would be actually very easy to uh, force yourself to speak a version of English that requires cardinal directions, right? So you could just decide today that um, every time you use a verb of motion, like if you say, I'm going to go get lunch, uh, you will instead have to say something like, I'm going to Northwest to get lunch, or uh, I'm going to, instead of saying, I'm gonna turn up the volume, you might have to say, I'm going to South the volume, uh, depending on how your board is set up, right? Now, if you forced yourself to actually do that, you would have to get oriented pretty quick and you would immediately start having to pay attention to where things are in your environment, how they're oriented with respect to <laughs> geographical locations. It would just necessarily force you to uh, to be oriented. And that's just a culture of one person, right? Do, do that's you think just you can you. learn that as an adult or do you, do you think you have to learn it young? I think you can learn it at any time. Um, you know, I had this experience there uh, so I, I spent a lot of time outside and like, I like to hike and I, um, used to go a lot of, go do a lot of uh, mushroom foraging when I was growing up and I travel a lot. So in my life, it would be useful to be oriented. Uh, and my sense of direction isn't terrible, but I'm not, I'm often lost. Um, so this is just to say, I've had a lot of pressure at other points in my life to want to be oriented. But when I was there, it was intense pressure right? because people treat you like you're stupid if you don't know what English is, which, and they're right. In that cultural context, it is it is pretty stupid <laughs> to not know what direction is, which even children can do it, right? Yeah. And so after about a week uh, of this pressure, I remember I was walking along and I, I wasn't thinking about being oriented. I was thinking about something else. But all of a sudden, I noticed there's this window that popped up in my mind. And it was a little uh, bird's eye view map of the place I was walking through. And I was a little red dot that was walking, that was moving uh, wow. along this map. And then as I turned, the map automatically rotated on the land, in my mind to stay wow. in the landscape. And when that happened, it felt effortless. When that happened, I thought, oh, well, this makes it so much easier. Now, <laughs> now I'm oriented. Man. And I kind of sheepishly confessed this to someone there. I said, hey, you know, this weird thing happened. Saw it from a bird's eye view, and then this thing rotated. And they just looked at me and were like, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so crazy. Man, did you ever see the film uh, Arrival? Yes. That That's one of my favorite ever films, and the book, the short story as well by Ted Chiang. Um, yeah. Is that is that what you'd equate it to? I suppose because she started to learn um, the main character to to think to think differently about time as she learned the alien language. Is that what you were doing? A foreign language that and it was changing your way of thinking. Uh, in a way, obviously less dramatic than being able to travel, <laughs> yeah. being able to see the future or travel in your mind <clears throat> to the future. I, ha I, I was very jealous when I saw that film because I have been uh, studying space and time across languages for many, many years, and I still cannot see the future. So I was like missing something at it. <laughs> but, but you know what? Because of your sort of uh, status as a top linguist, would you have been the person – who was it? Amy Adams, was it? It was Amy Adams, I think. Would mm -hmm. you have been the person that they came to ask for if aliens landed? Um. Probably a field linguist uh, would be a better choice. Uh, I, almost certainly there would be a large team of people working on that. There wouldn't be just one. It seems like if you were actually trying to solve the problem, you'd have a large team of people. But I think what um, one thing that film captured really beautifully is the analytical process of trying to figure out a new language and trying to figure out the structures in a new language, even if... Um, 
you have some description of a language, you should, some hooks into it, very quickly you realize that the things, what you think things mean isn't exactly what it is. And there's there are a lot more details and you have to be so clever. Uh, it, it is really like a, a wonderful mathematical puzzle that you're trying to take apart. Do you think it, I mean, I already know, well, I don't know the answer actually. Uh, do you think it is possible that that you might be able to see time differently had if you learned an alien language if you could see the future and that kind of thing i think uh we are of course limited by the way that human brains are structured and wired right so there are hard constraints of anatomy physics the physiology so um there are some things that are not going to be possible given uh the physical setup of a hum- of a standard human brain Mm. But what has impressed me is how many more things are possible than we used to think. So, for example, the the Kutair, uh example I gave you, we used to think that humans couldn't orient that way. So uh, there are all these studies done, usually in English speakers in the U.S. or in the U.K., and uh, they kept showing just how poor uh, English speakers were at staying oriented much worse than a lot of species, right? So you could compare to salmon or to birds or to foraging ants in Tunisia. And you would always say, wow, these other creatures, they can dead reckon and they can do this kind of pathfinding that humans just can't do. And we would always think that English speakers and humans were synonymous, (laughs) right? Uh, Anglo-centric. Yeah. And then, um, Anthropologists go into these communities and start seeing, wait a second, this language required, like in order just to speak this language, you would have to be able to perform a cognitive feat that we think is beyond human capacity. And then you start testing people and, and it's very clear that they can do it. And it's not because they're magical creatures or because they're biologically inherently different. They just have a different practice. And that practice gives them an ability that we used to think was beyond human ability. So what you're saying is that we could probably see the future if it was the right <laughs> language, if it was the right alien language. Politely trying to say probably no. But let me give you an example. Of, I mean, seeing the future, of course, would be cool, maybe problematic as, as you know, the movie already shows. But Uh, Let me give you an example like numbers, right? So uh, some languages don't have words for exact numbers. Some languages have completely different number systems. Think about how transformative being able to do mathematics and think about precise numbers has been for our culture. So right now we're speaking over Zoom, which is, you know, using uh, so many layers of technology and invention that is all based on numerical systems refined by humans, right? Everything that I can see in your uh, room uh, is made with math. (laughs) Uh, Everything you can see behind me is made with math. Right. Um, And that to me is uh, a cognitive difference where even like a really small difference, like having number words in a language that creates a stepping stone to a whole domain of human endeavor that can completely transform culture, completely transform the kinds of spaces we live in, the kinds of things we can do together. Uh, Those are huge, huge transformations. And um, coming up with a good number system that kids can learn makes math something that only a small handful of adepts could do at one point, like when we were talking about Roman numerals, for example, to be able to do multiplication with Roman numerals, that would be a very special person. But now multiplication is something that we get first graders to learn how to do and memorize uh, multiplication tables, right? So it's a... Again, it's a completely transformative cognitive technology. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take 
to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. I love the idea that there are, whether it's seeing the future or not, but like that, that, that there are, as I say, you know, superhuman, that with things that we imagine superhuman that we don't even know about that we uh, might be able to do, like the cardinal points and that kind of thing. Another point that you've talked about before is color. Uh, and especially, you know, uh, Russia and how they have different words for dark blue and light blue. Tell me about that. Yeah, so languages differ in uh, the kinds of vocabularies they have for colors. Some languages have lots of color words. Some languages have only a couple words like light and dark. Some languages might not actually have color words at all. There's some argument about this. Um, mm. And there are differences in where languages place boundaries between colors. So the difference between English and Russian is actually a relatively small difference. And it's just that Russian doesn't have a single word that covers the entire range of colors that we call blue in English. Instead, there's a separate word for light blue, голубой, and a separate word for dark blue, sini. And so Russian speakers have a lifetime of experience of having to call those two colors by different names. And of course, English speakers also have the option of calling them something more fine-tuned, right? So you could say, oh, that's cyan, or that's light blue, or baby blue, or navy blue, things like that. But you're not required to do it. And if you want to just say it's blue, it's fine. No one no one will correct you. Uh, so in English, there is a basic word blue that covers this broad range that Russian has to be more specific about. And what we find in that case, and also lots of other cases where languages disagree about a boundary, is that wherever you have a boundary in a language, so for example, in Russian between light blue and dark blue, uh, Russian speakers will be better able to tell the difference between colors that fall on that, along that boundary. So um, the same would be true, for example, for English speakers across the blue-green boundary. So colors that are on one side or the other of the boundary appear uh, start to appear to be more different. Yeah, so I'm wearing on purpose a light blue T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Is this as close to green as it is to navy? <laughs> um, well, it's a, it's a somewhat different dimension because uh, light blue, dark blue is a distinction along saturation, whereas uh, green and blue is more of a distinction along hue. So mm. they're, they're on different dimensions in color space. I just remember, yeah, Guy Deutsch was saying something along those lines of like, it's actually the turquoise is between sort of green and, and dark blue. Uh, and maybe for some, some people with other languages, it might feel like it's just as close to green as it is to dark blue. Whereas for us, it's like, no, this is clearly closer to dark blue. Yeah. So how similar or different you think colors are changes. It's just 
uh, color space is not one dimensional. It's at least, at least three dimensional. Okay. So these are all ways that, yeah, languages change how we think. What about the way we change languages? Why does language change over time? Um, well, languages are living things. So languages are always changing. Um, they are, after all, tools that we create and craft to suit our needs. Languages change for lots of reasons. Uh, the simplest reason is there's a finite set of words or expressions in a language, and there's an infinite set of things that we want to talk about, and new situations arise all the time. And so we're constantly pushing the boundaries of our language uh, in different directions. Of course, we invent new things, so we invent words for them, or we borrow words from other languages as we make contact with other languages who come across some word in another language that you're like, oh, that's a really great idea. And I, I want to have that word and you adopt it. And maybe you adopt the idea yeah. as well. Rendezvous. Yeah. Or the weekend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the other way around. Yeah. For the, for them. <laughs> yeah. The weekend. French and other languages have these specifically have these commissions that try to slow the, the change of language or the adoption of other words. So in France, there's the Académie Française, which is this, august body that's meant to decide what proper French words will be for all mm. kinds of English borrowings. So they try to prohibit people from saying things like le weekend or <laughs> selfie, you know. So. Oh yeah. And and like two thirds of the radio stuff has to be like French language music and things like that. So I think recently they decided that the the proper French word for sexting was texte pornographie. Uh, which I'm sure no one says. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't flow well, does it? Is it a sign of bad things sometimes when when there's a group of people who push for too much change, the opposite of the French? I'm, ju I'm just thinking of like, I saw that the word preference the other day in the dictionary uh, was Webster dictionary was sort of changed a little bit. Um, and then it was, it was said that to, to describe someone's sexual preferences um, is now controversial or offensive. Is that worrying when uh, when a group starts to force language changes? Is that always a worrying sign or can it be a force of good? Well, let me say two things. One is we're always negotiating with each other, with other humans about how to use language. So it's a completely natural thing for some people to want to use language one way, other people to want to use language another way. And there's a, it's just a constant push and pull and a constant negotiation. And the fact that people are free to engage in that negotiation, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, a lot of people want to engage in that negotiation because they feel that the language that they speak does not reflect the way that they think. There are really drastic, lots and lots of really drastic examples in history of language change that's forced on people. Uh, you don't have to look any further than the destruction of Native American languages uh, when uh, colonizers come or indigenous Australian languages, again, when colonizers come, where um, kids are taken away from their parents, forbidden from speaking their native language in school, uh, beaten for doing it. Uh, you have that experience all over the world, whether it's in colonial Africa and colonial, uh, the colonial Americas and colonial Australia. Compared to that, I think someone saying, um, using the word preference in this context or that context is offensive. It, it seems like something I worry about less as a destructive force. I think it's a natural part of the human language process to, uh, for people to push for the language to reflect the way that they think mm. and to and for other people to push back and say, no, this is not the way that I think. <laughs> and it's a con it's going to be a constant negotiation. Yeah. But I think some of the things that we argue about um, are things we're holding on to, not because it's really the right way to think or there's only one right way to think, but just because what we're, it's what we're used to. So uh, let me give you the example of gender pronouns again, right? So in English, uh, some people would like to introduce a new gender neutral pronoun um, instead of he and she or to take away he and she. Then other people argue that this would be the destruction of the English language <laughs> if that happened. 
or language would become incomprehensible if that if that happened. Of course, there are lots of languages that don't have gender pronouns. They continue to exist. It's just fine. There are also lots of languages that mark gender a whole lot more than English does. They also continue to exist. <laughs> so, well, there's a lot a lot of space uh, on either in either direction to be potentially happy with. But uh, what no one ever says is. Um, oh, uh, what we really need to do is we need to add more gender to English. So for example, isn't it terrible that the word you isn't gendered? Isn't it terrible that the word I isn't gendered? The word we isn't gendered? <laughs> In fact, English already mostly has gender neutral pronouns, right? Except for mm. he and she, all the other pronouns are gender neutral. Yeah. And the people who say that they, you must have gender marking on pronouns never advocate for adding gender to those other pronouns where some languages have that, right? So wanting to hold on to it in this particular, only in the third person singular, like is the, did English find just the one perfect case where gender is necessary <laughs> on pronouns, only in the third person singular, not in any of the other cases. Yeah. So to me, when I hear these kinds of arguments where people feel very strongly one way or the other, I think, well, you know, there are lots of good solutions to this. Languages can work lots of different ways. And just whichever way the language happens to be now mm. is almost certainly not some perfect way. It could be made different in all kinds of ways that would improve it for a certain context and make it and make it worse for other contexts. I suppose when we talk about like how it's changed since Shakespearean times, it, it's thought to have happened quite naturally. And I suppose the problem some people have is that this this isn't, when and 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 I'm I, I'm very you know I don't have a particularly strong opinion either way either. Um, but it, it's it, some people feel that it's a particular group often who oppose their own political values who are going out of their way to change the language. Um, as as I say, the opposite of the French system, I suppose. So it's like a control of the language, and people don't like feeling that they're out of control, I guess, or being controlled by others. Well. Uh... But to, so just to play devil's advocate, you would say there's always a power dynamic and who decides how language is going to be used, right? And yeah. so someone who's advocating for a change now would say, well, but this whole time, the people in power have been the ones dictating what the language should be like. And it's just that we have never had a voice up until now. So now uh, people are upset because we're quote unquote controlling the language because it's just the first time they ever have to even listen to us <laughs> until this point. They've been the ones controlling it. And yeah. so they have never been unhappy with it because it's already been working for them. And this is the first time that they're hearing something that's different. Right. What everyone changes that people don't like are the changes that they're not the ones that are generating, right? So if you're gen if you're generating a change, if you're if you're uh, uh, if you're the one who wants it, it doesn't feel like it's being controlling. It feels like it's just naturally springing up from the way that you think. But if it's not the way that you think, then you feel like you're being controlled. But that that can happen between any two people. Maybe the difference this time. And I'm thinking about what, am I right in saying this happened to Jordan Peterson? Is it, is it right that in Canada it was made legal that you have to refer to people by certain pronouns? And that, so that, that couldn't that be seen as like an example of the, the actual, you know, more control? That's not really happened before, has it? I don't know about the law that you're talking about, so I can't, uh, okay. I can't comment on it. But someone might say, but let me, let me just play it. I, I agree with you that it feels... Um, at times grading when uh, you feel like, well, I'm just talking the way that I grew up talking and I don't mean anyone any harm. And why, why is someone bugging me about how I'm using the English language that I learned? <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, uh, just let me live. Right. Like there's kind of that. Like, and I, I, all of us have the, like, can, can I just live feeling from time to time? Right. Sure. At the same time, someone, for example, who strongly believes that they don't fall into uh, a gender binary would say, well, this whole time I have been been forced to refer to myself as he or she. That has been forced upon me. And it's also been forced upon me by the government where whenever I fill out an official form, I have to check he or she on the form. Right. So they feel like they've been being controlled their whole life. 
yeah. uh, by the structure in the language. And so if you try to make that argument to someone who feels like they don't belong uh, in either side of that binary, they've already been experiencing that their yeah. whole life. Um, so but that's a really uh, good point, actually. It really just depends on how well you feel the language fits the way you think. One of the things I've heard you, I think, concerned about is how quickly we're losing many languages around the world. Um, why is it important to safeguard them and how can we do that? Yeah, we're losing languages at a really alarming rate. So um, there are about 7,000 languages right now. We're losing um, about a language every two weeks. About half of the world's languages might be gone in the next hundred years. Each language is an incredibly complex cultural product. It's the result of thousands of years of cognitive work by people within a culture, people who have collaborated and argued and tussled <laughs> for, for all those years. And it's a museum. Yeah. Well, it's it's a living, yeah, it's a living, incredibly complex cognitive tool that was crafted over thousands of years contains all kinds of knowledge about the world, ways of seeing the world. It's also, uh, it creates a disconnect for people who are members of that community. So for example, um, folks in Native American communities who have lost their languages uh, are heartbroken that they feel disconnected from their ancestors, that they can't, can't participate in the cultural practices that their ancestors had. And they feel that, that separation from history. It's a great loss. The question of how to keep languages alive is to create opportunities for people to actually continue to exist and speak those languages. So very often languages die because of war, because of colonization, because of financial pressures to abandon a language and speak a new language. And so um, for anyone in positions of power, uh, creating circumstances where people can continue to thrive and speak their language and not be forced to abandon it uh, is the most effective way. Usually the way that languages revive is if young people start speaking them. So if young people think it's cool or fun or advantageous to speak those languages, um, so cases where languages have revived, like in Hawaii, for example, young people decided it was really cool to speak Hawaiian mm. and they started learning it and it, it, it became an important part of their identity. Like Hebrew, I suppose. Yeah. Hebrew is a language that, uh, I mean, it was a kind of a decision, uh, to bring the language back the, at the very least it was starting from a very rich textual base, right. And had to be modernized in some ways. Yeah. There was a lovely example from Welsh a few years ago. Welsh is a language that's been in revival. And um, a few years ago, there was a, an article that said, now we know the Welsh language is back because uh, there's uh, a pornographic film that has been released in Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be looking that up as soon as they hear this. A good, uh, a good sign that a language is truly alive and well. Wow. Welsh, that's incredible. What about, I've heard you talking as well about um, the way we use language in dealing with disease uh, or, or battling disease, as they say. Is um, How do we change that? Is that? And why is that problematic? Mm. Well, any way that we talk about um, hardship is going to get us to think one way as opposed to another way about how to deal with it. So my student, Rose Hendricks, um, she actually started thinking about this because her father was battling cancer, and that's the way we would talk about it, say battling cancer, it's fight against cancer. And um, she started thinking about whether, whether it's inviting you to think about and experience a particular way when you talk about a battle, a fight, or a war. And for some people, it may be that when you're sick, you don't also want to be a fighter in addition to it. And also, what if you lose the battle? Is that Does that then become your fault, that you weren't a good enough fighter? You weren't strong enough, right? So do you feel guilty about losing the battle? Is that extra pressure good for you? So she started doing experiments to try to, to, try to understand this. Um, and what she found was that, in fact, when you use these kind of battle metaphors, um, people think that you would feel more guilty if you didn't recover um, and that you would be less likely to make peace with uh, a diagnosis or a bad predicament. So there's a lot more that we can find out about all the different consequences of using one metaphor or another. But what we find in our experiment seems to agree with what 
a lot of um, people who are uh, uh, diagnosed with cancer experience. They say, uh, you know, in addition to having cancer, I also have this burden of everyone telling me <laughs> that I need to fight when that's the last thing that I want to do. It's just not, that's, yeah. that's, that's not the kind of energy I have in the morning. My best friend is a, um, what is she? She's an academic in the English department at the University of Leeds. And she wants me to ask you um, how you think heart metaphors and cultural associations, such as love, emotion, courage, character, that we use all the time, might impact on the experience of cardiac patients. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, cultures differ, of course, in where they think things reside, right? So, um, or even like now, if you ask English speakers, where is your thinking or can you feel your thinking in the brain? People will say, yeah, like I can feel it happening here between my ears. But um, it's not a, an idea that people always had. Like Aristotle thought the brain was just a radiator there to like dissipate heat. He <laughs> thought thinking happened in the heart. Uh, there are places where people think thinking happens in the stomach, which is also very reasonable. Um, uh and then the question is uh, about emotion, and you know, obviously, uh, in Western culture, we often associate an emotion as being in the heart. There are places where people think it's in the stomach, or they think it's in the head, or they think that it's not inside an individual body. Instead, it's between two people, right? So, yeah. love can't reside inside one person. Love is necessarily relational, so it lives in the space between two people who are experiencing love. Natural <laughs> seems very logical <laughs> as yeah. well. Uh, some places emotions are things that you do uh, so you anger at people <laughs> or you're sad right yeah. and there are some places where emotions are things that overcome you from the outside there are some places where it's uh, things that you like states that you reside in like almost like a room that you can be part of um it's a really interesting question. We don't know the, I mean, I'm, I'm talking around it because uh, we don't know the answer to it, but I think it, it is a really interesting space to explore um, mm. how the way emotion is conceptualized in the language could change the way you experience it, what you think you can do to control it, like whether you even think you have control over it, things like that. She'll be so happy that you answered that. That's what she's working on at the moment. She's mm -hmm. really into that. Um, so thank you for, for answering that. Tell me about, um, yeah, 7,000 Universes. Is that what you're working on at the moment? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a book that I'm working on. Uh, did you want to hear more about it? <laughs> yeah, well, if you want to talk about it. I'm sort of, I'm coming to the end now because we've had an hour and I just thought if there's stuff you want to plug, uh, stuff like promotes, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm working on a book uh, that's tentatively called 7,000 Universes. And... Um, and trying to bring together all of the research that I've done and other researchers around the world have done looking at how languages change the way we think. And uh, part of that project is also trying to change the way that we think about language and the role that it plays in our lives. Uh, so um, often people think of languages as static things, as like, here's this artifact that I inherited and this is English. Uh, uh, and it doesn't work that way. Often people think of words as having precise definitions. And again, language doesn't work that way. And so having this exploration of how language changes the way we think also um, allowing us to turn the mirror on ourselves and say, well, how is it that I think? And why do I think the things that I do? And why do some things appear so natural and right to me? Are they really natural or is it just the structure of my language that's causing me to think that? And what other ways could I think? What are the, what are the ideas that um, I could create if I wasn't bound by the things that already exist in my cultural context and my language? Um, so hopefully a fun, a fun journey inside one's own mind. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I love all of this stuff. Um, do you have an idea of when that might come out? Mm, I have to finish it first. Oh, okay, right. I'm after I finish it sometime <laughs> to experience uh, time in a completely different way, in which case we can do it in the other order. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I loved that movie.
Thank you so much for coming on. I've wanted to speak to you for so long. So I got flustered. So I always get flustered when I speak to a professor or, or someone like that. I get like all fl- I start tripping over my words and questions and things. Um, it, it doesn't happen with other. It's just professors and stuff for some reason. My head. Yeah, yeah. If I speak to someone who's like a traumatic experiences with professors. Yeah, well, school, school, <laughs> school, and it's just. Uh, I suppose if I'm talking to somebody, I mean, I've, I've interviewed people like. Um, a psychopath, for example, mm-hmm. and like I don't feel like she's judging my intelligence or. Uh, no, actually, she probably was the psychopath. <laughs> she was. She was crazy. I asked her. It was so interesting talking to her because I said to her at one stage, like, "How would you feel then?" Because she's nice. She's like a nice woman. Uh, she's she's a Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, "How would you feel if someone came in the room now and started like just killing me?" And she mm-hmm. was like, "Andrew, like you don't get it, like." It's not on my radar. It's just nothing. It's it's whatever. And I was like, wow. Have you taken the psychopath test? You know, there are these yeah. uh, questionnaires. You can. So I remember um, I was when I was a professor at MIT. Uh, we had uh, a fellow uh, um, come and give a talk about. He was studying psychopaths, doing neuroscience psychopaths, and um, he started giving us examples of these kinds of questions and descriptions of typical traits of psychopaths. And I have to say, every single person was looking around the room being like, I hope they don't discover that I'm secretly a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, you know, it's it's easy for any uh, group of high-performing individuals to go down that checklist and be like, sometimes I can be quite callous. And, uh, (laughs) oh, it says here psychopaths are charming. Well, that's clearly me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the test from what I gathered, I mean, there was a great book by, do you know John Ronson? Mm -hmm. So he he wrote that, The Psychopath. And he was saying, he he wrote halfway through the book, I remember he said, by the way, if you're worrying that you might be one and you're anxious about this, then you are not one. And that was a relief to me. (laughs) Where do you stand on that? (laughs) And whether or not I'm a psychopath, mm. <laughs> um, I'm not worried about it. Um, really? I think <laughs> you might be one. Uh, no, you know, I, ha- I, I, I haven't murdered anyone so far. As but neither had the psychopath I talked to. Mm-hmm. Not yet. Mm. I think, yeah, a lot of high-performing people are psychopaths. And that's fine. As long as they're not trying to murder people, who cares? There's a lot of neurodiversity uh, in the human population that we don't yet understand. And so I think thinking about, um, we only have you know a small number of categories that we use now. Oh, you could be a psychopath or a sociopath. And then there's normal. Well, likely as we learn more, all of those categories will shift and change and many, many more categories will emerge. And um, the fact that people's brains work differently from one another um, is a blessing. Different people are good at different things and they see things in different ways and having, uh, having lots of people with different brains cooperating together allows humans to make really fast, incredible progress. That would be a lot more boring if everyone was exactly the same. Come on, hands up. Who learned something interesting today? Am I right? If you did learn something good uh, that you can repeat as a little party trick about languages and things, you can thank me for that by making sure to subscribe to this podcast, spreading the word, and following me on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, at, at andrewgold underscore okay. That's where you'll see the video teasers of this episode, so you can see what we all look like. Uh, I love all that language stuff, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Lyra Boroditsky. I love thinking about how our language influences how we speak and the idea that there's something out there, some weird untapped concept or ability that humans are yet to discover because it doesn't exist in our language. In the movie Arrival, it relates to how we're able to experience time. That kind of thing is probably wishful thinking, but it's the closest thing that I have to a religious belief in that I want to believe it so much that I keep going around fervently trying to learn new languages like a maniacal pokemon collector or a science fiction horror creation who keeps eating brains to steal all the information within there was a point in the talk where i think we disagreed a little bit when she was defending the right of people to enforce language changes on others 
I think she articulated her point really well, and I wasn't about to seriously debate someone with an IQ three times my own. After all, she's the specialist, I'm just a guy with a microphone. I do agree with her that it's important we use the labels that people want us to use to describe them. I just think that it can be dangerous, as in the case of the Canadian law change that could land someone in trouble for failing to use the right pronoun. That said, I did do a bit more research after the podcast, and it seems like it's very unlikely you'd actually be arrested just for failing to call someone by their correct pronoun. So it's not such a worry for now, despite what Jordan Peterson may say. I think it's great that language evolves seemingly naturally over the centuries, uh, and things do change. Just look at the way we text each other and that kind of thing, and how that's changed speech rapidly in just a couple of decades, the phones and, and different ways of communication. I'm just a little wary of any kind of enforced change of language or meaning because it makes me think of Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany. On the other hand, perhaps those are just the worst examples and that this kind of pressure for a change of terminology can sometimes be a force for good, as Dr. Boroditsky suggests. By the way, this last week I was asked to go on a few podcasts as a guest. One was Awaken Atlanta, where they tried to get me to say I believed in the paranormal, I did not and do not, but the hosts were dressed up and face-painted as aliens and Star Trek characters, and they looked amazing. You can find the video for that on my new blog, on my new website, andrewgoldpodcast.com. Also, I was on the really popular podcast, Thank God I'm Atheist, which is run by Frank and Dan, two former Mormons, uh, where I talked about my exorcism documentary for the BBC. It was a Halloween special. Again, Find that on my blog, andrewgoldpodcast.com, or social media channels, andrewgold underscore OK. Please remember to leave a nice review, adding where you might be listening to it. Uh, Natalie Camilla, for example, got in touch on Instagram to say she was enjoying my accent attempts. There were more of those today, the French and Argentine ones earlier. And as for weird places, she's listened to this podcast while cutting butternut squash for the first time. And she listened in the bath which is what I'm aiming for, a whole community of people listening in their baths. Uh, it's a great way of social distancing too, staying in our respective baths, no mixing. Meanwhile, J.K. Jacobs left a review on Apple saying, Oh yes, a blooming good listen. Truly one of the greats of podcasting. I wish all the best for the future of the show. That one does sound great, so I thank you very much, J.K. Jacobs. But it does sound a little bit like it might be a friend or family member hiding their identity. Uh, in, in which case, thank you anyway, because that's a very nice thing to do. So, so either way, thank you very much. Please keep leaving these. Tell me something funny about you or your relationship to this podcast and spread it around. Uh, lockdown will hopefully reduce COVID rates, but that's no reason to stop this podcast spreading around. Is that offensive? Doesn't not not in an offensive way, but spread it around like a not like a disease, but like a good podcast. Next week, I've got the one and only Peter Bogosian on the podcast. He is the third and final of the three anti woke academics who forged uh, or, or made hoax papers uh, that that were ridiculous and overly woke and got accepted by universities and things. Um, so he's going to tell me about how the world's all gone totally mad. And I've also got a woman who remembers everything from her entire life, including her own birth. Uh, I think that'll be the week after. So a couple of really interesting ones coming up. Do stick around. <laughs>